The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. And if it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Good morning again. Some of you know I don't always love uh, preaching. I have sort of a mixed relationship and how I feel about it. But I can't wait to preach to you this morning. For those of you who are just checking in to our uh, series, when you hear a text like that read at Christmas, you're like, wait, what are they doing again? Um, What we've been doing is walking through the women that are presented in the genealogies of Jesus. The women that are presented in the genealogies in Jesus. There's some in Matthew's version and there's some in Luke's version and there's overlap. But we're walking through the women represented in the genealogy of Jesus. In other words, the mothers of Jesus. The mothers in the line of Jesus. And the Bible takes great care to point out each and every one of their stories. And that wasn't done in this time. You wouldn't track genealogies with women. So despite what people think The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a very high view and intention for women. Um, But I want to, uh, as we step into this story, it's like four chapters long and we just read like four or five verses. And so I'm going to so quickly summarize the story of Ruth because you won't get the meaning and the power of Ruth unless I give you the cliff notes of what's going on. So let me just do that for you really quick. The story is about pain like deep, life-altering pain, okay? And then there's this sense that maybe the story's not over and maybe there's redemption. And maybe people on the outside can actually be brought in. And that's sort of what the story is about. So in the story, there's this woman named Naomi and Naomi is married to Elimelech and they have two sons. And this two sons just starts right out the gate, Naomi's husband's died, and then her two sons die. And the two sons had wives and seemingly didn't have any children, which at this point in this story, they would have had children if they weren't infertile. And so it's just this story saturated with sadness. We've got a widow who's lost two sons and isn't going to have any more family because her daughters-in-law are barren. And so she, in her sadness, says to her daughters-in-law, look, I'm going to go home to the land of Bethlehem. Remember that word, Bethlehem. I'm going to go home to the land of Bethlehem. But you girls are free. Like, I'm a sinking ship. You girls are free to go your own way. 
which is a really beautiful self-sacrificial thing of Naomi to do. She's got nothing left and she's taking the little that she has and sending it away and she's godly and sacrificial. And then Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who's lost her husband, is godly and sacrificial right back and she says, don't tell me to leave you or turn back from following you for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. You will be my people and your God will be my God. I want you to pay close attention to that. Widow, she's lost two sons, and one of her daughter-in-law says, I'm coming back with you, even though she's an outsider, a Moabitess woman. And then in chapter two, there's this sense where maybe the story's not quite over yet, and Ruth finds herself gleaning in Boaz's field, and she's basically caring for her mother-in-law, and Boaz sees Ruth, notices her and has compassion and says, make sure you leave a little extra for her. And then when Naomi hears about Boaz and his kindness, she says, Ruth, you need to go marry this guy, which I know is not kind of exactly how our modern ears hear it. But she says, you need to go marry this compassionate and godly man. Um, And Ruth says, I'll do what you say. And so Ruth goes and asks, basically, uh, asks Boaz to marry her. And Boaz agrees, but says there's one other person who's allowed to ask because of these leveret uh, Israelite laws. But if he won't do it, I'll do it. And by God's kindness and grace, that guy says, yeah, I'll do it. And he's like, actually, no, I won't. And Boaz says, then I'll do it. And so it's the redemption of this family. A woman who's lost her husband and bereaved of her two sons, poor and with her outsider daughter-in-law, and then all of a sudden, Boaz marries her, and there's, they conceive a son named Obed, the great-grandfather of David in the lineage of Christ our Messiah. Okay? So that's the story. It's a love story where the girl seeks the guy in marriage even back then, and where God provides beauty through the sorrow of three deaths right at the beginning. And you'll see why we're going to study it this morning. But you have to understand the story to appreciate what's going on. So that's where we find it. I'll say this, and then we'll dive in. You're like, dive in. We're like halfway through. No, we're not even halfway through. I'm going to keep you here all day. After Naomi's had all this horrible stuff happen to her. Imagine the three men in your life just dead. And she says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Most of us in this room are trying to answer the question, is the pain that I have been through, am I going to be made whole on the other side of it? It's been so bad, and there is so much loss. Are you actually daring to tell me there's going to be goodness and light at the end? And that's what the story of Ruth asks. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you.
for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I beg for those in this room and those who are joining us online that you would move and move powerfully. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. There is a power in a baby. There is power in a baby. We just recently had our care team Christmas dinner. Their care team is made up of the women and men who love and shepherd you, lead small groups and women's Bible studies and city groups and the people that um, lead this church. And we don't get to be together that often because we're all often in our own city groups, our own Bible studies, but we all gathered this week and we had a blast. And two babies were there. We have Ben and AC's new baby, Fox, and Nate and Jenny's baby, Katie Grace. And it's one of those moments where the moms kind of walk in, head hung in shame, like, yeah, I'm the buzzkill. I brought a baby to a party. But otherwise, mom has to stay home. And we didn't want that. And so the moms are walking in like, hey, sorry for the, um, the problem of bringing a baby. Every other adult in the room that's not related to the baby is pumped. I stole Katie Grace 10 seconds into her arriving at the party. And I set up, and I could feel Kelly Perkins kind of eyeing, trying to get close and take the baby, and I turned my back to her. I feel Jamie Riley kind of making her move, and so I changed locations in the room. And people would pass off Fox and Katie Grace all night so that the mothers never touched the babies. Partly because we're trying to give the moms a break. But everybody was happy to do it. There is power in a baby. A baby is so fascinating because it captures all of our attention and yet it is completely dependent upon others. It is helpless. The baby is helpless. And what is so cool about the story of the Bible and the story of Ruth and the story of Jesus is that it involves so many babies helpless, dependent creatures. The whole redemption of the world rests upon this little baby, and we delight in it. And we see that in the story of Ruth having Obed, who has Jesse, who has David. The babies are so dependent, and they captivate us. And we also see that in the arrival of Jesus, who could come as an adult man riding on a war horse, but comes as a helpless baby. Also that you will get the, the notion being helpless isn't a problem. It's a good thing. As long as you have the right people taking care of you. That's what we find in this story. Life will bring pain. Pain will bring doubt at times. But love will bring hope. Life will bring pain. Pain will bring doubt. But love will bring hope. Just be in awe of the baby. Now let me show you a couple of cool things here in the text which uh, helps us to see that God is at work even in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the hidden. So it's telling the story, and the story of Ruth doesn't mention God's name a whole bunch. And part of, as you look at it, um, it can seem like that's kind of a rando story in the middle of the Bible, but it's, there's something more going on. And listen to this. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilon. 
And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. So as it's telling you about these three deaths, it says twice in two verses, Elimelech, Elimelech. Now, part of what's going on is that's, the, that's Naomi's husband's name. And what do you think Naomi's husband's name means? Elimelech, Elimelech. It means God is king. The author of the story is whispering to you in the midst of the death, in the midst of the unfolding, God is king. God is king. And maybe he's whispering that to you this morning. You are here with wounds. You've been left and forgotten and left out and battered and abused and wounded. And maybe even through all the ordinariness and the excruciatingness of it, God is whispering to you, I'm still king. I'm still king. You see, it's the beauty, the, the subtlety that we have to appreciate. That the man, I mean, it's like the guy who wrote Ruth is saying, the man's name was Elimelech. Don't miss it. And then he says it a second time. We all struggle to have hope because of the losses that we've hit, that we've that we've experienced. But maybe God is still king. Maybe the story's not over yet. That's what Ruth is about. Even though she can't quite see it, Naomi can't quite see it, Ruth can't quite see it, even Boaz doesn't fully see it, and yet God is still reigning and bringing good through brokenness. Elimelech, God is king. I tell you all of that to tell you that in this world, there is brokenness, and you know that. There's loss. She's widowed. She's lost two sons. Her two daughter-in-laws are infertile. She has no hope of income and protection. Did you hear her painful words? I went away full, and I came home empty. And God is sovereign in pain. There's a couple of things I want to tell you, and I've told you this before, and I'll keep telling you. There are theological realities that you need to hear, that I need to hear from the pulpit to bolster us for the very hard road of living in this world. And so I will say things from the pulpit that I would hope and pray that we as a church can learn to have more nuance as we model them for others in conversation. Here's what I mean. If somebody loses their husband and two sons, you could think it's the time to say, Elimelech, God is still in control. God is going to bring good out of this. No. We hear that from the pulpit, from our deep background understanding of Scripture. But while we're in the moment with the person who's lost her husband and her two sons, we weep and we shut up. And we say, I'm sorry when it's time to talk. And we say, I love you and I'm with you and I'll be praying that's what you say. See the difference? You need to hear from me and I need to hear from the Bible this sense of Elimelech. God is in control, but I don't want you to be the kind of Christians and believers who walk around smacking people in pain saying Elimelech. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to see is, is that this is true for her that God can bring good out of pain. She is in a foreign town 
She's lost her husband and her two sons. And she goes back destitute poor to Israel. And maybe that's, maybe the story's not over yet. Maybe God will still bring beauty through pain. And that's what I want you to experience is in your story, in your loss, in your bereavement, in your grief, in your shame, in your assaultedness, in your abusedness, in your woundedness. Maybe the story's not over yet. Maybe the story's not over yet. Maybe God will bring good through your pain. And that doesn't just apply to us as individuals. That applies to us as a church. We are here two and a half years in to planting a church. We planted formally and fully on August 8th. And it has been the hardest two and a half years of my life. And yours too. It's nothing special about me. It's, it's been the hardest two and a half years as a church. AC's dad and Charlotte's dad is Ted Strawbridge, Mary Lou's husband. It was his idea to plant Restoration Southside, to which I said no to twice. And he died tragically six months into this thing. Six months into this thing, he dies, leaving children and grandchildren and a lovely spouse. And he's gone to glory. And that's how we started. And then seven days later, I'm walking out of Ted's funeral and I get a text from one of our other staff members that her 30-year-old brother has died. You know, a surgery complication. And Ben and Sammy and Elizabeth and I are sort of stumbling to the end of the year. We've lost Ted. Seven days later, we've lost another staff family member. Sort of just clinging to each other and clinging to grace. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, at least 2020 will be better. (laughs) And it was there to kick us in the teeth. We've experienced real loss. We couldn't even meet together. The world is falling apart politically and racially. We've experienced loss. And friends, look at what's happened There's 430 of us. We're working together as hard as we can to buy a huge facility. And I'm not saying it makes it okay that we've lost who we've lost. But it at least forces us to admit God can bring good out of brokenness. God can bring life out of death. The story of Joseph in the Bible. His brothers beat him up and sell him into slavery. And then there's such a bad famine in the land that his brothers ultimately, years later, move and go to Egypt to try and make some last-ditch effort to save Israel. And little-known Joseph has been there, and he's risen to the top of the top of Egypt. So their brother, who they got rid of, is now the most powerful man in Egypt. And they come to him and they finally realize it's him. He hides it for a minute to see what their hearts are really like. He finally realizes that it's him and they say, sorry. We're sorry. And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
And this story whispers to us what looks like it's only evil. Wait. Childless Ruth. Childless Naomi. In a foreign land. Wait. That's horrible. That's evil. That's sad. Maybe the story's not over yet. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This little four-chapter story saying when things look like they cannot be recovered, maybe we can pause and we can breathe and we can say maybe the story's not over yet. That's his point. That's what Ruth models for us. I don't want you to hit each other over the head with it in pain. I want you to cry and be quiet and say, I'm sorry and I love you and I'm praying. But as a backdrop, what all of us need to hear is maybe in the, your stories of loss and our stories of loss as a church, the story's not over yet. The story's not over yet. And the story is about loss. No one knows more about loss or at least publicly famous for it, than Johnny Erickson Tata. If you don't know who Johnny Erickson Tata is, is this phenomenal godly woman who has just taken hit after hit after hit and suffering, and she still believes in God. She still professes Christ. She teaches the rest of us how to believe in the midst of difficulty. Part of what made her story so extraordinarily difficult is that she dove into water not knowing its depth, snapped her spine, broke her neck. It was a quadriplegic. And you know how Christians can be. The Christians gathered around her in her pain. And she said they're well-meaning and they're well-intentioned. And she said, they encouraged me. And one Bible verse they shared with me was from Jeremiah 29, verse 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but to help you. Plans to prosper you and give you hope and a future. Johnny Erickson Tata, when she heard those words said to her over and over again, in her own heart, she said, God, you mean you plan not to harm me? What do you call quadriplegia? Ha! She laughed sardonically. And then later on, this woman who is held on by a shred of faith is still teaching about Jesus and gets breast cancer. And she says this, and I read it to you because I'm not sure, other than the Bible itself, anyone has talked about suffering and sovereignty so clearly, so beautifully. She said, I had breast cancer a couple years ago, and I remember as my husband was driving me home in the van from chemotherapy one day, we were talking about how suffering is like little splashovers of hell. Like the suffering in your life, the suffering in your life is a little splashover of hell. Kind of like waking us up out of our spiritual slumber. And she, we pull onto the driveway, and he said, well... This is Johnny Erickson Tata's husband. Well, what do you think then splashovers of heaven are? So if when you're hurting, suffering is splashovers of hell, what do you think splashovers of heaven are? He said, you think they're those breezy and bright times where everything's going your way, you have your health. 
and said, no way. That's not what a splash over of heaven is. Splash over of heaven is having or finding Jesus in your splash over of hell. And she says this, to find Jesus in your hell is ecstasy beyond compare and I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking in the world. So her point isn't that when you suffer, it's splashovers of hell, and when things are really sweet, that's a splashover of heaven. Her point is when you suffer, it's a splashover of hell in your life, and the splashover of heaven is when you can find or encounter Jesus in your splashover of hell. That's what he's saying, that's what she's saying to us. Is that you in this room, and I know a lot of the stories because you graciously, vulnerably let me in on them. You in this room have lost. It's a splash over of hell. But maybe the splash over of heaven isn't getting out of it. Maybe the splash over of heaven is finding Jesus in it. And it's not saying, oh, it's okay that my life fell apart. But it's saying that even when things fall apart, God will do right by me. God will do good by me. God can be trusted. The story's not over yet. That's what she's saying. That's the story of Ruth. You see three deaths in two verses and you're like, oh, it's too much pain. There's no redemption to this story. And then slowly over the course of four chapters you start to see Maybe the story's not over yet. Maybe God will bring good out of evil. That's how Ruth says it. That's how Johnny Erickson Tata says it. This is how Jesus says it. Jesus, the one who will be the great, great grandchild of Ruth. Great, 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 great grandchild, but great grandchild of Ruth. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The story's not over yet. So what I want us as God's people to learn how to do is to experience the splashover of hell. And you don't have to like it to slow down and say, maybe the story's not over yet. Maybe God is good. Maybe he can be trusted. Maybe he will bring good. I don't get it right now. But that's not what we want. We want a relationship between us and Santa Claus. We'll be good all year. You don't give us coal. You give us the good stuff. And if you're going to give us the good stuff, we'll give you cookies in return. Not that you need the cookies, Santa. That's, the, that's what we want. God, you be good to me. I'll be a good boy. I'll be good back to you. And Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. That's the story of Ruth. When everything falls apart, maybe the story's not over yet. Maybe good will still come.
Here's a movie that I love um, that has this powerful conversation in it. And um, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman says this. A boy is given a horse on his 14th birthday. Everyone in the village says, oh, how wonderful. But a Zen master who lives in the village says, we'll see. The boy falls off the horse and breaks his foot. And everyone in the village says, oh, how awful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. The village is thrown into war and all the young men have to go off to war. But because of the broken foot, the boy stays behind. And everyone says, oh, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. That's what I want you to see is that maybe there's more to the story. Oh, Jared has left Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church and he kidnapped Ben and he took him with him. How awful. We'll see. Oh, Ben has ousted Jared and taken over Restoration Southside. How awful. We'll see. Oh, Malon and Kilon have died and so is their dad. Naomi is left alone. How awful. We'll see. Oh, Jesus has been murdered and all of his friends have abandoned him in the dark. How awful. We'll see. You see, my friend says it like this, nothing is wasted. Nothing of your story is wasted. You will at some point see on that great day that the worst parts of your story you'll worship him for. And I know for those of you who are limping, that's hard to hear. And you're like, yeah, I don't think so. But even if just because those moments brought you into a deeper, desperate dependence, baby-like dependence upon Jesus, nothing is wasted, nothing of your story. This is godly woman Naomi says, my life's a mess. Y'all get out of here. I'm going to go. Y'all go. Go find something better. Godly, sacrificial, even though broken. And her daughter-in-law says, no, I'm going with you. Your problems are now my problems, ma. Godly, sacrificial woman in in the Bible. And that's what a picture of what the church should be like is that as we look at this city and this neighborhood and we see all of the profound problems and brokenness and loss, is that we look at the people of this city, the people of this neighborhood and say, hey y'all, that looks so hard, but your problems are now our problems. We don't have an easy answer for you, but we will walk with you. We will love you. We will be present for you. You see, it's us who are supposed to understand that even though there's going to be pain, even though there's going to be sorrow, even though there's going to be loss, the story's not over yet. That our God is actually at his finest. When everything looks lost, Jesus hangs on the cross and dies. It's it's the worst thing humanity has ever done. There's only one good one, and we put him to death the worst crime against humanity, and yet out of the worst crime against humanity comes salvation for the world. 
And Joe Novenson says it like this, if he can do that with the world's greatest crime, the world's greatest tragedy, and bring good out of it, how much more so can he do with your smaller crimes and smaller tragedies? God will bring good out of evil. God will bring good out of pain. And it's our job to gently, faithfully make a welcome for other people who don't yet know that and for ourselves to be reminded of it that God will bring good out of pain. Naomi can't see it. Ruth can't see it. Boaz can't see it. Let me say this. Are you in a place of devastation? Are you in a place of devastation and you just can't see it? How could the story possibly end well? How could, the, how could the story possibly end well? That's what this story and the great story is for. It's not that it would be happy all of the time, but out of the worst parts, there would be splashovers of heaven. And those splashovers of heaven are ultimately going to become heaven. Heaven come to earth, where there's no more sorrow, no more sin, no more shame shame, no more tears, and no more pain. Friends, hold on. The story's not over with. And the point is, is that Ruth also brought outsiders in. Same with you and me. What if the church was a place for outsiders? We'll close with two stories. I hear you, buddy. I'm almost done. Do get a commentator says this. This love that Jesus has is thus far greater even than the love of Ruth for Naomi. He left his place in heaven, not just the greener fields of Moab. He left intimate fellowship of the Father for the pain of the fallen world. Jesus didn't nearly risk his reputation for us. He was made of no reputation, despised and rejected by men. The moment of his greatest pain and rejection on the cross, there was no near redeemer to rescue him. There was only darkness closing in around him on the cross as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because of Ruth's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, who gave up the throne room of heaven and experienced pain so that pain would be transformed and work backwards And we as the church are supposed to go give it away for free. We're supposed to open wide the doors of this facility and say, come, whatever you got, whatever you believe about God, whatever you believe about life, you've been assaulted and abused and and you've been wounded and you're suffering and you're struggling and you're discouraged. Whatever you got, bring that with you. That's what we want. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named Alex Wallington. And he uses this story, and some of you have heard me use it before. But he tells a story about Anthony Bourdain, a tragic and beautiful story. But he was doing his last episode, or last episode of the season for Parts Unknown. Some of you watch Parts Unknown on Netflix. And Bourdain is meeting with Chef Sean Brock. 
And Sean Brock starts to tell Bourdain, this famous foodie, that one of his sweet memories of growing up in the world is that he used to go to Waffle House. And he liked it because he's watching the cooks make the food right in front of him. And Bourdain says, what's Waffle House? And Sean Brock says, get up. We're going right now. And it tracks them. Sean Brock, Chef Sean Brock, introducing Anthony Bourdain to the Waffle House. And the restaurant, the Waffle House, left its mark on Bourdain. He says this, it is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Until a few hours later, I'll add. No, he says this, everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation is welcomed. Listen to him describe the Waffle House. It's warm, yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered, all across the South to come inside, a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It's always, always faithful, always there for you. The Waffle House. Friends, imagine with me if what is thought of the Waffle House was true of this church. Whatever you believe, you're welcome in here with us. There's room in here. Whatever you've suffered, there's room in here for you with us. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever your doubts are, there's room in here with you for us. We will never shut the door on you. It's always, always faithful and always there for you. That's our dream for Restoration Southside. Despite the painful beginning that God is using the pain even to work his good, is that if we are known for anything, it would be known that you are safe with those people. And not just with your wounds. Of course you're safe with us with your wounds. But you're safe with us with your sin too. That you can't stare at a bunch of people and tell them they need the doctor, but that they have to get better until they come see the doctor. With your suffering and with your sin, you're safe with us. And our leadership team and our staff work tirelessly. We will do everything we possibly can to make you not feel lonely here. We'll do everything we possibly can to make you feel loved and seen. Friends, you have taken losses. You have taken hits. What if God's not done yet? What if the story's not over yet? What if he's going to work good out of bad because that's what he does and that's who he is? And what if we get to share that with people? What if we get to welcome people through the doors and say, we're here for you. We hope to make you feel safe with us. Let's pray.
Father, there are losses in this room that would take our breath away to hear recounted person after a person. Just maybe the story's not over yet. Maybe you'll bring good out of bad because that's who you are and what you do and what you did in Christ. Would you make us into the kind of people that throw wide open the doors and say, whatever you got, you're safe here with us. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Would you make us into the kind of people that throw wide open the doors and say, whatever you got, you're safe here with us. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.